Hello, everyone. I am that Williams guy back for an actual new episode. Um, you know, as I told you last week, we had to replay the Annette Evans episode or re-release it. I did to a technical glitch. I'm very happy that combined with the two releases, uh, the numbers have actually been very well. It's gotten over 400 plays if you combine the two together. And then there's been like another 230 something views of it on the on the YouTube version. And, you know, for an episode that was off the beaten path, I'm very excited to see that the numbers have been as high for that episode as they are. And uh, all the response has been very, very, very good. And uh, but this week we're going to get back kind of on our beaten path. And this episode kind of have a, has a strange origin. Uh, Paul, who we'll introduce here in just a second, uh, sent me a message about something we said in one episode we swapped back and forth he was actually trying to set someone else up to be a guest on the show and that person didn't want to do it it's like well paul why don't you come on and we'll do the episode and so we'll get into that same topic uh but here tonight is our guest mr paul cross tell him who you are hey how you doing lee um paul carlson uh started out my shooting career you know back at before the turn of the century in michigan as concealed carry and and shall issue started to come into play and uh, really kind of caught the bug. My background before that was as a teacher. And so throughout my life, whenever I've become passionate about something, I've always moved in the direction of, of teaching that thing. And so sure enough, uh, not too long after that, I started, you know, teaching just little safety classes and things like that. And that's kind of morphed over the last 20 years into a, a full-time career in the shooting industry with part of that being teaching and the other part being uh, media, especially video work for for firearms manufacturers and other accessory manufacturers. So that's kind of my, uh, my gig, personal life, uh, husband and, and father of two great kids and uh, um, spent as much time out on the range as I can. And over the past, I guess, four years now, I've been spending a lot of time at Alliance Police Training Facility and, and doing a lot of um, training that really at the time seemed like it might be out of the scope of, of what I should be paying attention to a lot of shoot house and CQB stuff that I've been working as an instructor to pull the, the important aspects of that out to try and get those out to the average citizen. Excellent. Uh, let's talk about your teaching background to start. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what, what subject did you teach and what level did you teach? Yeah, I was a math and science teacher in the middle school. So I spent the majority of my time teaching sixth grade, you know, a couple of stints a little bit lower than that, but most of the time I was in, in the sixth grade kind of matched my sense of humor and level of maturity at sometimes I think, but uh, um, so uh, yeah, I was teaching primarily math was what I was, was uh, really um, into and, and successful with. Okay. And how many years did you teach? Uh, I would have been 13 and a half years. Yeah. When my, first daughter was born. I took a leave of absence to stay home with her. I'd relocated States and the pay didn't make sense to put a kid in childcare. And, uh, and that just stuck. Um, I was, I was home a lot with the kids and, uh, um, and then working the business on the side. All right. I don't think I've actually discussed this on quote my show. Mm -hmm. I know in the, the episode where I was a guest back on civilian carry radio years ago, I actually talked about this. I actually went to college to be a middle grade social studies teacher. Oh, really? That was my initial major when I, an undergrad when I went and I got all the way to my senior year and mm. was about ready to start doing the student teaching. And I was informed that I was not allowed to have a job while doing my senior block year block schedule because the Dean of the college of education viewed 
that that was a full-time job. Well, I was a non-traditional student. Right. And I was paying, had to pay for my own living, everything, and was paying for college. And I told my advisor, I can't not have a job. Yeah. I want to be a teacher. This is, I've done, spent three years towards this goal. And that's what I want to do. And she said, well, you can, you can try it. But if he finds out, he'll make you either show proof you quit the job or he'll make you withdraw. I said, well, I can't take that risk. And so I was closer to a political science degree mm-hmm. because I was going to be social studies teacher. Sure, right, right. And I ended up with a bachelor's of arts in political science with a minor in history instead of being a middle school teacher. Right. Right. And I began looking for ways to get a graduate degree because I knew a BA in political science was not going to be tremendously employable. Mm-hmm. And I actually found a cop job that would pay for graduate school. Mm-hmm. And so that's what started me down the cop. Now I always had interest in it, but that's what actually got me to fill out the application and go do the job. And, you know, if it hadn't have been for that one thing, this whole part of my life probably never would have happened. Isn't it fascinating how things just take you where you're supposed to be? Yeah. And it's just amazing. And, you know, thank goodness I made the decision I made because right. I'm happy with how it turned out. Right. But, um, so what led you to make the change from being a school teacher to actually moving into the firearms? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, there's, there's actually really two different prongs to it. Part of it was simply financial. Like I mentioned, you know, I looked at the salary that I had after transitioning states and you know how union jobs can be, you know, I started out, I was at step nine in Michigan on the pay scale and went down to step one when I came over to Ohio. And so, you know, when I looked at almost a half of a salary um, compared to what I was making, that was, that was kind of a hard, hard nut to swallow. I'm not sure if that's a saying or not, but we'll go with it. Um, And then there was the, the fact that I really didn't fit into the, the typical education culture. You know, I remember um, putting up a bulletin board, you know, I'm supposed to do a bulletin board about me. And so I'm putting up, you know, a certificate from USPSA, you know, I'd won a a point series national championship for my class. I was a B class shooter at the time. It's not that big of a deal, right? But that, that was part of my life. And I remember my principal saying, what are you doing? You can't put that up there. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. Jim down the hall put up his, you know, soccer trophy from his club soccer team. Like I actually have an amendment for my sport and, I can't, you know, and, and so that aspect of it, the fact that, you know, when I had a kid that was interested in firearms and we could tie in ballistics to math and it finally got a kid that didn't have any interest in math whatsoever, interested in math, but that was actually a problem. That's when I kind of was looking at things and saying, this just isn't right. It, it just, it, it didn't sit well with me. And so I wanted to make sure that I was around to help my kids get their education. Now they're, they're public school kids. Don't get me wrong, but they get, they get a homeschool treatment from, from both mom and dad and, and helping them to, to figure out the way that things are supposed to be. So um, I, I kind of let the family values lead me in what I felt was the right direction at the time. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because I really doubt that my teaching career would have lasted more than a couple of years. Yeah. I probably would have had to bounce schools several times and then would have been out because of that exact thing that you're talking about. Absolutely. Um, I remember distinctly a, a discussion in one of the uh, you know, education classes I had to take where they got on the subject of, you know, medic, medically treating behavioral students. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm a little sensitive to that because if I was around now, if I was a preteen now, they would have slapped me full of drugs. Oh, yeah, me too. Me too. And I grew out of it. I managed to defeat it. And once I finally got to study what I wanted to study, it made a huge difference. You know, I, I don't even have a college preparatory degree, from, uh, diploma from high school, but yeah. I've got three college degrees and graduated with honors. Yeah. So this whole thing of deciding at six, sixth grade or 12 years old, that this, this student needs medication that's going to alter them for the rest of their life. That, that to me was just an issue. And I voiced those concerns in class and I got looked like, looked at like I have a third head. Right. Right. And you know, I do think that the system does weed out people from our ilk. I, I agree with that. If you look at if you look at the traditional politics of you know what you consider an educator, they are significantly different than the typical politics of your shooter. And that doesn't mean that there's not some crossover in there. There certainly is, and there certainly are teachers that are involved in in the shooting sports and the Second Amendment world, but um, they do so at their own risk and and probably a lot of times behind closed doors and and don't spend a lot of time talking about it. And I, I you know, that's all. I am who I am. And, uh, and I decided I didn't want to spend my life dodging that, if you will. And, and we've had to work with that with our kids, too, in schools. And, you know, their dad works in the gun industry. So when the question comes up, well, what does your dad do for a living? My dad shoots guns. You know, that's, I mean, that, that really is pretty much what I do. Um, but it, that's hard for, for teachers to swallow. So what did you take from your, your training as a teacher and all of your experiences as a teacher what from that translated over into your professional firearms teaching life? So I think the, I think the most obvious thing for me, especially at the beginning was just some level of comfort being in front of a group of people. You know, when, when folks are, instead of being a teacher they're you know, they have some set of skills and then they want to teach those skills. They have to figure out how to manage, you know, classrooms, how to read students, how to do all those kinds of things. Well, I spent, you know, 13 and a half years doing that every day, all day. And so when I walked into a group of adult learners, it wasn't that much different. Um, I I worked really hard to treat my students with adult type of respect when I was a teacher anyway. So the transition was pretty simple from that standpoint, but just being comfortable in front of people was pretty big. But then I think the other aspect of it was the understanding of assessment and and what that really means and trying to be able to work that into the teaching of of firearms. And that's been, that's a constant journey. Um, That whole cycle of, you know, giving some instruction and then we're immediately assessing students to figure out where it is we go next. And I think there's way too much you know, of, of somebody pulling an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper out of the file cabinet and Hey, here's today's POI. And, and they head to the range and that's what they teach. Well, if that's not what your students need, um, you know, you're, you're up a Creek if you're not able to assess that and figure out where it is you need to go next. So that's, that's, I think the biggest thing that's really translated for me. You know, my next question was going to be about pedagogy and lesson plans and everything, but you said the magic buzzword of assessment. Yeah. So yeah. I think we need to spend some time on that because right. yeah. you know one of the the key distinctions between private sector training and public sector training is that or the institutional level training 
mm -hmm. is on the institutional side, we're tested against standards all the time. Now, they may be anemic standards, right. but we're tested against standards all the time. Whereas on the, you know, the private open enrollment sector, I, you don't see a whole lot of people doing assessments. Now, right. you you spoke about the need. Now, I think you can look at it from both ways is, is what you're presenting is that are the students getting what you're trying to teach? So you're actually assessing your own, your own material. And right. then you're also assessing whether or not the students are learning and are their skills possessed. So I think that cuts both ways is my understanding. Well, I think it even starts before that Lee. I think, I think the assessment for me starts when, you know, the cars pull up in the parking lot and people are getting out and, and, you know, are they carrying their gun already? Um, you know, are they, what holster do they have on their belt when they step up to the line? Um, what level of comfort do they have? You know, are they, are they visibly nervous? And you know how some students are, they haven't been to a shooting class in a year and that can be a nerve wracking thing. They don't necessarily know what the instructor wants. So that assessment starts right off the bat of, of, okay, what level do I think my students are at and where is it that I need to begin things? And so assessment comes into, you know, are these students ready for me to teach what I'm about to teach them? And if not, let's get them to that point. And then assessment comes into, have we gotten them to that point? And then we move further on with that of, okay, now we've taught a block. Have they internalized that block in, in the ability to perform what it is that I've asked them to do? And so I really look at it. I mean, it's just a constant cycle that's going on and on and on and on. And if you're not on top of assessing where things are at, then you're really just you know out on the range shooting and that's that's fun and that can be a good time but that's not my goal as an instructor my goal is to take students from wherever they're at and and get them to that next level and i don't care if you know the soccer mom is here and the SWAT cop is here both can make progress and sometimes hey this one makes even faster progress and that that's the goal is to see where individual students are and get them to the next level yeah, you know, when you started discussing assessing students as they get out of the parking lot, yeah. it's amazing how you can spot mm -hmm. the, okay, that's where I've got to keep a sharp yep. eye on that. Or you tell your assistant instructor, you're camping out with that person. Yep, when absolutely. They, when, as soon as they get out of the car sometimes. And this may be a pet peeve of mine. If you pay money to come to a shooting class and you actually got yourself to the shooting class you knew you were coming to a shooting class so why yeah. don't you have magazines loaded right and you right. see the person that slides to a stop if the class starts at nine they pull into the parking lot at 8 55 and then they get out and they're trying to stand over there and frantically load magazines now you right. can understand if something happened with the traffic or, or something else like that but if that's just the way they they rolled or they roll up at 906 right and right. then they've got to load mags and then they've got to get their gear and everything. You know, pretty well, right from the start, that's going to be a person who's not going to be keyed into what's going on. Yeah. And it, and it may just be that they don't have the experience to know that that's what they should do. You know, someone that goes to their first NRA basic pistol class, that's told that, you know, ammo needs to stay in the car, separate from the gun, leave your gun in the vehicle. You know, if that's their experience from an instructional right. standpoint, okay, I can understand coming into the world of a two-day handgun class, not realizing that, man, I'd rather you carried your gun here and we'll get that defensive ammo out of it and get some mm -hmm. range ammo in and we'll be good to go. 
Um, so I can understand how that happens. But, you know, the other thing, Lee, is part of that assessment comes down to some folks are there just to have a good time. Yep. That, that's one of the things that I see with those folks that roll in a little bit late, you know, and then they need to leave early. It's what they could carve out of their schedule. And this is recreation for them. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not how I approach things. You know, I'm, I'm there to I'm there to bear down and do work at, when I'm a student and, and when I'm an instructor. Um, but I can't I can't hold that against somebody. What I do try and do is try and make that as productive of an entertainment time as I can make it for them. You know, that's that's the goal. But, yeah, that assessment plays a huge role in that. Yeah, I guess we can look at that a little further, too, is especially when it comes to the experience level of the student. If they've never taken classes, mm -hmm. they might not know the benefit of having training mags versus mags that stay loaded with carry ammo. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. You know, I, I've got a bag that's got, probably got 20 Glock mags in it. Right. And right. some of them stay loaded. Some of them stay empty. So just in case we get a special of, hey, you need two empty mags to start. Okay, here are my two empty mags. Or you need, you know, three mags loaded full. Well, here are my seven mags loaded full. Right. And those, they never get loaded with carry ammo or duty ammo because that's not their job. Right. And that's the worst is when you're not paying attention and you drop that duty ammo in that pile of loaded mags <laughs> and it's a $20 string of fire that you just uh, cranked off. You know, wow, that felt stout. Now there's a reason. Well, thank, thank goodness for me, I've got taxpayer funded ammo. So if that happens, <laughs> then, uh, then it was, I needed to shoot up my duty ammo so I could carry right. it fresh. That's right. Must be nice. Must yeah. be nice. Uh, and we do that, you know, from time to time as well. We, sure. We'll have them come come to the range and we take them straight out onto the line and we start shooting with that duty ammo. Because one, it makes sure that it functions in their guns. It hits the point of aim, point of impact, et cetera. Uh, so there are viable reasons for needing to shoot Absolutely. that. And if, if it's something that you're betting your life on, 50 bucks every six months. Not a big deal. Shouldn't be. You know, that's that's something that, that, that should probably be programmed into your budget and your expenditures. Well, it's, that's how I handled things when ammo was easy to get and it was a little bit more reasonable. I would, you know, budget in 200 rounds of HST for the year and I'd buy that in 50 round boxes. And when I go to the range, you know, once a month, I would go ahead and expend that ammo and then just reload my magazines at the end with fresh ammo. It only makes sense just for all the reasons that you said. And let's not kid ourselves. The, the recoil of you know, 124 grain HST compared to 115 grain range ammo isn't the same thing. You know, we should, we should probably be experiencing that recoil from time to time. So we know and understand what it's like. One of the reasons we switched to 124 grain uh, ball ammo for practice is that we were issuing 135 grain duty ammo. And there was a wide variation between where the 115 was hitting and where the 135 hmm. was hitting. So we tried to more closely match that. Uh, because what are, what are the guys shooting more often in training is the 124. Right. Yeah. We're using critical yeah. duty in the 135. Is yeah, that we use that critical duty. Okay. Um, and, you know, for the guys that are carrying optics now, they must zero the optic to the duty ammo, Absolutely. not to the, to the training ammo. Absolutely. Yep. Well, that's what's great. You know, a lot of manu uh, ammo manufacturers now are selling, you know, a, a package where you buy your carry ammo and then training ammo that's basically the same loading. It's going to be the same mass projectile and same powder, et cetera. That's a nice, nice feature. And, and if you can match that up, that's great. 
And of course, speaking of taxpayer ammo, if you're the FBI with their budget, they just buy all HST and train with that too. So right, why, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Of course, when you're buying rounds by the millions instead of the hundreds, it makes sense. It does make sense. It does make sense. And then you don't have that mix-up problem either. That's kind of nice. Speaking of the mix-up problem, there is a federal law enforcement agency, and I won't name them on air, that uh, they're training ammo by contract. The holes are dyed purple. Really? Yeah, so that the agents do not mix up the Theoretically, the agents do not mix up the uh, the practice ammo and the duty ammo. I am certain that it has happened. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but they, they train on on the range, same range we do. And I just love walking up there and see all the little Smurf ammo all over the all Great. over the range. Great. Um, so, what else about assessment should we discuss? Well, I think one of the mistakes we make in firearms training is is sticking with so much uh, assessment that is is nailed down in concrete, the easy stuff, um, time and accuracy, right? We, How many standards do you have that are based on time and accuracy? And we forget about how you do it actually might matter too. And in order, and, and you mentioned it before, the standards are often anemic, but as we push the envelope and try and get faster and maintain accuracy, we can take shortcuts that might not make sense from a combative standpoint. And I think we need to make sure that we have both the subjective uh, aspect of assessment, which means, you know, we're looking at how things are done as well as the objective that's easy and concrete. I understand that that's hard in shooting. You know, we've got, we've got live fire guns. We can't look at things from all angles, but we need to be, you know, that, that figure skating judge that's also looking at how things are happening. If we're cheating our draw in some way to be faster, well, maybe that's not going to serve us in the end, if that makes sense. Oh yeah. It makes perfect sense. It actually ties into a drill I've been running with my guys the last couple of weeks in, in the classes okay. I teach. Um, the so-called escalator draw. Okay. In yeah. the presentation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Math teacher is the shortest distance between two points a straight line. It absolutely is. Right. And so I understand from a competitive standpoint that that escalator draw, because it's a shorter distance traveled, it's going to be faster on numbers to the right of the decimal point. Yep. Yep. All right. But from a combative standpoint, is that the draw stroke or presentation that you need if you're seated in a patrol vehicle or seated in your vehicle in the driveway? Exactly. Exactly. Or if you're seated at a table at a restaurant or at your desk in your office. And I would submit that for people that are carrying with the primary reason they're carrying is for combative to save their life, then their focus needs to be on a draw stroke, such as Spalding teaches, you know, the up and turn and then the presence press out. Okay. It is slower to the right of the decimal, but it works in a whole lot of situations where the other one doesn't. And that's one of the keys, right? If, if we're it, so the other argument that people might make is, well, I'm going to learn a draw stroke for each of those positions. And, and so then you end up in the decision-making tree and spending mm-hmm. all of your time thinking, well, which draw stroke is it that I use? Or am I going to use my slide release this time? Or am I going to work the gun over the top or all of those different things that, that we can take and expand out and do many different ways if we can find one way that works pretty good in all situations, 
we're probably going to be better off when it comes to needing to actually put that into skill because then we don't have to decide. You know, that's, that's the part that takes the longest, deciding to draw the gun, deciding how to draw the gun, deciding when to draw the gun, um, deciding how you're going to deal with that malfunction. How about you just have a process that deals with all malfunctions? And, and it might not be the fastest if you already know what the malfunction is going to be, but I'm guessing if you're in the real thing, you probably didn't put empty brass in your magazine, you know, the fifth round down and you get what I'm saying. You know, we're going to, we're going to have to be ready to deal with whatever comes our way. All right. That comment right there inspired two things for okay. me. Number one, you mentioned the decision of drawing the pistol. Yeah. Uh, my good friend, John Murphy would tell you that the decision to draw is the first count of the draw stroke. Right. It, well, it has to be right. Right. I mean, so, so I'll take it, you know, and, and I'm sure that John understands this and I'm sure you understand this, but we, we spend so much time working on draw speed. Cool, man. If you can be a sub second draw from concealment, that's awesome. As long as you're getting your hits and doing your cool way to go. But if you can discern that you need to draw three seconds earlier and you've got a two second draw, I think that's a negative one second draw, isn't it? Uh-huh. And, and, and so we spend so much time on the hard skills that we miss the point that there might be something that, that could lead us to being ready even sooner. Maybe, maybe you don't even draw the gun, but you just get a, a master grip on the pistol in the holster. How much time have you saved? And that's, that's the most time consuming part of the draw itself is actually grasping the pistol. So taking a look at things, I think from a teaching standpoint, I think learning to look at things from different angles and, and try and figure out where I can really get the, the gain for the least, you know, uh, Claude Warner talks about the Pareto principle, you know, where can I get 80% of the improvement from 20% of the effort, man, that's, that's where the low hanging fruit is. That's where you really, that's where the rubber meets the road in my opinion. And that squirrel has come back around because that second question has quickly run out of my mind that I was going to come back and ask you it. And I've hit that age. Uh, the other girl I was the other day, I was at a restaurant and the, the girl working in there called me, sir. And she meant it. It wasn't customer service. And I was like, ouch, that hurts. I haven't been ID'd for alcohol and I don't know how long anymore. And it's just, it's getting hard. It's getting yeah, hard. That hurt. I make and, those noises when I stand up and sit down now. Right. You know? Yeah. And it's funny because I've always looked much younger than my actual, than my age. Right. Until now. <laughs> Like before, when I tell somebody, you know, I'm 37, like, no, you're not. You're only like 28. Now, when I say I'm 50, people go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I see it. I see it. It's the salt and pepper. That's, that's what yeah. does it for you. There you go. Man, I wish I could think of what the second one was. It, it would make sense if I kept like a notepad here and I wrote stuff down as it popped we'll in. Come back in. We'll, we'll just jump back to it when it comes to you. <laughs> All right. Um, anything else on assessment? No, I think that covers it. I think, I think one of my pet peeves in the industry is just all the objective assessment with the lack of, of subjective analysis of what's happening. And I think we need to spend more time doing that. Well, I guess you could, you could say with that too, is one of the drills I had my guys doing in class today was seated at a table doing the draw because I was trying to, all right, you've been taught the escalator draw by another instructor because it's faster, but how do you get to all the calls you get to in a car? Right. Well, when I had them start working, okay, I got a problem on the past, on excuse me, on the driver's side of the vehicle, and I've got to come up and then get the vehicle, excuse me, get the pistol either over the steering wheel right. 
and to extend, or I've got to either turn it and come across my body and extend. All right. We've got the one, we got to make sure that support hand is pinned to the yep. chest. And number two, we've got to be perfect in our movements, both across and then back to the holster, or we're going to laser our femoral arteries. Absolutely. And so as we're working the draw stroke, if all I'm worried about is the time, what the, what the readout is on the timer. And I'm not, you know, I'm not stressing to get the support hand to center line so that it's not flagged in front of the muzzle and everything. That's all stuff that needs to be coached and taught. And I had some honest and actually some realization based discussions with some of my guys over the past few weeks as I've been running this with them. It's like for years, I've been telling you this. And this is why. Right. For years, I've been telling you this and now you're starting to see it because and here's one of the things is my previous position was chief deputy. And Mm -hmm. so I had overall control of the training program. But I wasn't necessarily turning the wrenches on everything. Right, right. right. And now that I've moved over to the training director position, I'm actually the one on the range teaching every class and turning the wrenches. I'm seeing that we've done a really good job of getting our guys' holster skills improved from where they were. They're not where I want them to be. But for the most part, they're vastly improved from where they are. But when we start putting them in situations where it's not a holster skill question, okay, they're not necessarily understanding how to run the gun. Right. So as long as it's just draw and shoot, they're down. They're, they're good. Or at least to a certain level. But if they start having any kind of issue with the gun or they get put in a situation where it's not standing here flat-footed and, and into a target that's fully facing them, there I'm starting to see some issues crop up. So that's the thing where I'm having to assess what I'm doing and plan future classes and future drills that I'm going to have to work with them on other things. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I talked with uh, um, Nick Humphreys of practically tactical this weekend. He did a video that's going to come out later this week, I think on, on the YouTubes. And he was asking about why people should take, um, you know, CQB or shoot house type training. We were at a, a training class and what you're pointing out right now is really the biggest reason that, that I think that this is important. And I look at the brain as, as a series of file cabinets and we have access to information that's in the drawer that we open up when we're working at it. And we tend to stay in that drawer. And so if we have a set of square range skills that we've learned on the square range and that's where we're accessing, Hey, that's where we're working. If you're in a, some kind of a critical incident where your life is on the line or other innocent people's lives are on the line, you're not opening up the square range firearm skills drawer. You're opening up the, holy crap, everything's going down right now and I've got to do something drawer. If you haven't solidified those skills in that drawer, I'm pretty convinced that they're not very accessible to you. You know, we look at the, the national average for law enforcement officers, and we don't have this for private citizens, you know, how often they hit their targets. So, so we can't analyze that data. So I'm not picking on police officers, but we know that that's between 12 and 20%, you know, depending on the year and depending on what agencies we look at. I don't think it's because they don't know how to shoot. I think it's because the skills aren't solidified in a way that they can access them when they have to be thinking with their brain. And I think that's one of the, the things the disservices that we provide our students when we're on the square range and we're running 
everything prescribed as, okay, you'll do this, then you'll do this, then you'll do this. There's no decision-making involved in that at all. They're just repeating. They're, they're proving, hey, I could remember what the instructor said to do. Well, we yeah. probably need to be doing more than that. Yeah, and that kind of leads a perfect segue into a discussion of pedagogies mm -hmm. and, and, and lesson planning. Uh, yeah. I've been doing a lot of study into the topic of interleaving or interleave oh, yeah. training here recently. Yep. And, and it just makes sense with this whole conversation we're just having is, you know, chunking is we're teaching A, then we're teaching B, then we're teaching C. And I'm explaining this for the audience. Interleaving might be I'm teaching A, but then I'm teaching C and then I'm teaching B, but I'm, I'm engaging different parts of your brain with the same material. Yeah. And that you will actually learn that material better if different parts of your brain are engaged versus I'm only engaging one part of your brain. Yeah. When, where did you get your interleaving, um, you know, study from what was it the talent code? Is that, you know, or, or where else did you dig into that? Uh, I, I ran across the term. I forget where I originally saw it. And then I saw, I began, you know, Googling it, looking for resources yeah. and everything and such on it. And there's actually quite a few good YouTube videos on it that kind of okay. really short clips yeah. showing it. So it's not like something that you got to spend a whole lot of time on. Yeah. Uh, to learn but it just I've been studying it from there I'm actually doing a uh, uh, another instructor development course in two weeks because just everyone I get a chance to get into and Thank that's you. one of the things I'm looking at is how it's going to cover instructor versus interleaving and it just makes sense and I saw it in action these last couple of weeks whereas I've been on telling these guys for years you know move that support hand to center line because you got to have it behind the muzzle but until they were actually put in the position of now I'm seated, I'm not standing on my feet and I'm gonna to have to come across my chest with the pistol. If this hand is not trapped against the chest until the muzzle gets by and then they, they come together, I may very well shoot myself. Absolutely. And, and you think about a, a, a driving position, you know, where do people put their hands in vehicles? Yep. Hand on the steering wheel. If that hand doesn't leave the steering wheel, that gun can't come to the driver's side without covering part of the body. And so having some kind of a, a place that that hand belongs when the, when the gun is being drawn is an important aspect of it. There's, when I look at interleaving, there's two studies that really kind of spoke to me about it in, in, from a teaching standpoint. And one of them is really simple. Uh, think about third grade physical education students. Their objective was to throw bean bags into a five gallon bucket at five yards, I think it was, let's call it four yards. And so the phys ed teacher took and had the students practice at four yards. One group just practiced at four yards, practiced at four yards, practiced at four yards. The other group practiced at three yards and five yards, never at four yards. Well, the group that practiced at three and five yards outperformed the four yard group. And, and that was the actual skill they needed to do. And the whole aspect or the whole idea behind that was they're actually having to engage their brain and think about what they're doing and judge the distance. Therefore, it makes the task itself easier. And, and the other one was dealt with uh, students in general surgery, uh, medical students, and the idea of, okay, let's say you've got to learn five surgeries. One group did this surgery for a period of time, then they did this surgery, and then they, you know, they moved on. Uh, the other group did whatever surgeries were coming up in whatever order, and they had to really work to stay on top of what they needed to do. Well, guess which group retained the skill to be able to perform those surgeries 
after they left their training. Well, it was the group that had to move back and forth between. And so the things that make sense to us from an educational standpoint in the speed of, of learning and then the student being able to repeat it right now and show us before they leave the range might not be the same, you know, teaching strategies we'd use to have students be able to get an understanding and gain some level of mastery and then retain that level of mastery a year from now. And, and we have to think about that. And that's, it's awful hard for us to do that when we see students on the range for one day or maybe two days, and then we don't see them again. How do we gather that data? So I think a lot of that comes from or needs to come from agencies like you have where you can track what kind of training is happening over time. And then the performance of your deputies of your officers out on the street doing what they need to do. And that's, you know, being able to analyze hand position with body cams now, we could actually see if a hand is in a place where it shouldn't be. And and we could collect data on that over time would be interesting to look at. So. After all of this discussion of assessment and then what that led into, doesn't that kind of pretty much demand that you must have a plan for the training? I I think you have to have a plan, Mm -hmm. but I'm very wary of having some kind of a concrete plan Mm -hmm. that is what I have to stick to. Um, So when I think about where I want to get my students to, um, depending on the class that I'm teaching, I'm looking at, okay, what is my end state that I want those students to be in? And, and then I build the plan to get them to that end state as best as possible. And my attitude is, number one, I want students to be responsible handlers of guns. Like that, that, that is probably one of the primary objectives that I have. And so in everything that I do, that needs to be woven in. If that's my objective, then I need to expect that. I need to teach that. I need to demonstrate that. I need to hold students accountable to that, right? So, so I look at that objective and then I determine how it is that I'm going to get there to that place. So that's a, you know, that's a pretty easy one. Um, but, but what might be different from a lot of instructors is that student that screws up and has a safety violation in one of my classes, unless it was a willful um, uh, intentional safety violation, I'm really concerned about having that student pack up their bags and hit the road because that's the student that actually needs that instruction more than anybody else. So if I boot them out of my class because they uh, drew their gun before I gave a, a gun command or they weren't as careful with their muzzle as I wanted them to be, I'm probably doing them, their family, and all the people around them a disservice. Now, that always has to be balanced with the safety of the people that are on the range, right? I can't have someone that's, that's blatantly dangerous risking the lives of my students and myself. But, you know, we've got to look at what it is we want students to, to achieve and then help them be successful with that. And that's a challenge. Yeah. I can spot right off. I'm sure you can. I'm sure most of the audience that have gone to multiple training classes, you that can, guy. you can, well, you can spot the instructor in air quotes that Mm. showed up to the range with no plan Mm. and just is winging it and is like okay well now we're gonna shoot the five yard roundup right right and then they go into some other drill okay what what is the purpose of why are we shooting this drill what teaching point does this drill apply to 
and what are we why are we doing this next drill next right. what what's the building block there or are you coming trying to teach something and you're going to tie it back in it becomes readily apparent and so that's why you know the 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 plan is is in my opinion and feel free to disagree with me here is i have my objectives that i want to achieve then yep. i look at the skills that i need yep. to achieve that objective and then i have my evaluation or you know are the students achieving the objectives through the skills that i taught and then that works both works backhand because i have to assess myself is is what i am selecting to teach right. or the the things that i'm presenting are the students taking that and achieving the objectives? Is it because what I've chosen has not gotten them done to there? Or is it because the student just didn't master the skill? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct about all that. There are all kinds of classes you go to. Um, some of them for me have been just classes where instructors who are ardent students, very avid oh. trainers, pick the highlight drills. Yeah. The ones that they just love to shoot the most. And then they compile a class of all of those drills. and what you may take out of that is improved accuracy, a little bit of increase in speed, um, but but there's no cohesive direction that that's being taken in. And, and that has to be worked into things. You know, the, the biggest thing that I teach when I teach, whether it's a handgun class or a carving class, is my goal is to get students making decisions. I want them thinking about, does the target need to be shot? Where does the target need to be shot? How often does the target need to be shot? When do I need to stop shooting? And I want them to be making those decisions out on the range while they're handling a gun. And so there absolutely has to be a significant amount of buildup. You know, we can't, we can't just skip the skills and go straight to that and have students that might not know how to draw from a holster or be efficient at drawing from a holster go there. We have to build those skills up little by little by little, get students thinking about the things they need to think about. And, and then we can start to move in that direction towards the decision-making. And so it, ha it has to be, it's not a crawl, walk, run. I don't look at it that way because, you know, crawling and running are incredibly different things. Um, what I look at it as is what skills are needed to run. And okay, let's start building those skills from the ground up in a sensible order so that we can get students to where they're straight out sprinting. And that's the goal is to be, you know, uh, Carl Lewis fast. It kind of dates me, but I can't think of a modern sprinter. Yeah. And you mentioned something earlier. You got to have a plan, but doesn't necessarily has to be hard and fast. We stick right. to these things. Uh, sometimes when you're looking at the students, it's like, okay, the next thing I had planned was X. Well, if I try X, I'm going to lose half of this group yep. or, I, or you see another problem. Absolutely. Uh, coming up, you got to shift that on the fly or throw yeah. something out of a class yeah. or, or come up with something else. You, you develop that, you know, and, and I know that you understand this, Lee, because you've mm -hmm. been an instructor for years. You develop a set of skills, number one, to be able to assess very quickly, are students ready to move on? Mm -hmm. And number two, then what is it that the students need to, to bring them up to where I need them to be? What's the remedial action? And there, there's no sense in taking students to the next step when they don't have a concrete foundation in the step before. You're, you're just stacking, um, you're building materials on a poor foundation, and we know what happens to the house that's built on a poor foundation. It's simply going to crumble. And so 
an example would be I taught at a class out in, in Washington and it was a carbine class and it was really kind of a unique thing. It was a fundraiser um, and we wanted maximum participation. And so there were students that couldn't attend the first half of the first day. Okay. I'm fine with that, but we're going to have to go back and get these students up to speed before we can go on to the next. And one of the things I explained to the students that, you know, were there for the whole time was every time we kind of took that step back, I said, man, we are, we're just working on the fundamentals. You know, we are, and there's never wasted time focusing on the foundational aspect of your shooting. It probably isn't as fun. It definitely isn't as sexy. It doesn't look as good on camera, but the fact of the matter is, is solidifying those foundational skills is what's going to, to really enable you to, to own them. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to work with um, Joe Wire from time to time. He's the director of training for the Alliance Police Department, and he trains, you know, several SWAT teams in the area. And whenever I'm at a training, you know, helping out, carrying targets around, whatever I'm doing, I'm watching these guys and they start out with just simple flow drills. They're just simply working, you know, different rifle positions, you know, retention, on target, low ready, high ready, high carry, low carry, and all of these positions that are the basics, right? It's the, it's the first thing I teach in a carving class. Every single time they come out to the range, they run through those. Why? Because they have to own them, their lives, the lives of their teammates, the lives of, of you know, innocent citizens in the community all depend on them having those foundational skills. And, and we just don't spend enough time working on those things. So yeah, absolutely, we have to be able to, to bring things back to where students, uh, where they are and, and be able to build them up to where we want them to go. And that's, again, just, it goes back to that assessment piece. And if your idea is, well, we just did that drill. So now this drill is the next drill. Boy, they're going to be pretty rotten at this drill, but let's do it. You know, you're, 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 all you're doing is running a class. You're not teaching a class or coaching a class or training a class. You're just administrating it. And that's probably not what people are looking for and not what they need. That's a very key way of saying that there's a difference between someone who's administering a class and someone who's actually teaching. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I kind of look at our instruction, and maybe this is an arrogant way to look at it, but it, it's almost like a medical professional needs to look at a patient, right? When students come into our classes, we have to have the correct treatment for what it is that they need to get better. And in this, ta- in this sense, it's a progressing in skills as opposed to getting healthy. But if a doctor already determined what it is that you need when you come into the doctor's office it's probably not a pretty good chance of you, you know, improving. Well, it's the same with instruction. If we've already predetermined what needs to happen next, we're just shortchanging the students. Yeah. Anything else on assessment or lesson planning or everything before we move on to our next subject? No, I think, I think that's, I think that covers it pretty good. I think, I think people need to really look for that in, in instructors and, and look for people that are ready to, to treat them for who they are as opposed to who it is the instructor assumes they are when they come into class. All right. Well, now we're going to interleave the audience because we're going to shift to a completely different topic. (laughs) Well, actually it ties back in, but we're going to approach it from a different area. Um, I noticed when I was reading on your webpage, uh, you were talking about your competition background. Yeah. And there was a key statement on there that said, you realize that competition wasn't the complete answer 
to preparing yourself for self-defense or critical incident, however you, however you phrase yeah. that. Yeah. And so to me, that asks two questions. And when I teach report writing to rookies, I tell them, if you write a statement that when you read it, it asks questions, answer those questions or your report's not thorough. So I've got two questions from that All statement. Right. All right. All right. So first, what from competition did you think prepare you for the critical incident? Hmm. Yeah. So what competition does is, in my opinion, it does really two things amazingly well. Number one, it teaches you to run your gun. Um, whether you're out there practicing or you're out in competition, if you're shooting competition, you're shooting enough that I don't care how reliable your gun is. I don't care how good the ammo is. Things at some point in time are going to go sideways. You're going to learn to feel the recoil of your gun and understand what it is that's happening. And, and you know, you'll feel a malfunction before you need to press that trigger again, because the gun just didn't cycle properly. Right. So, so you learn to really become, it sounds kind of hokey, but you become one with the gun and understand it. And then hopefully if you're smart, you learn ways to be able to take care of those malfunctions, those, those issues that you have with a gun, whether that's reloading it and feeling when a gun hits slide lock or knowing and understanding the gun's malfunction. I don't think there's anything that can, that can get you ready for that. Sitting in a training class and staging malfunctions can teach you the process but it lacks the stimulus. And the reason it lacks the stimulus is because you know, it's going to happen, right? You know, that in the next, in this magazine, someplace, there's a malfunction. I'm going to be ready to deal with it. What we need is we need that surprise. And then, Oh, I have an answer for that surprise tap rack and then progress on from there. So I think that's one of the great things competition does. And the other thing is, is competition has you shooting at five yards and three yards and never four yards. And then all of a sudden you have to shoot at four yards. Right. So it interleaves the uh, and I should be specific here. I shot USPSA. So we're talking, you know, running and gunning fancy, you know, ported slides, all that kind of good stuff. And um, having to make the determination of what level of work do I need to do to get the hit that I need as fast as I can get it is super important. You know, there's there's some hits that. I am going to be bearing down on that front sight and I'm going to be really working with a smooth press. And there's other times where, man, all I need to do is get that gun in between my eye and that target. And I'm going to burn that thing down and learning which is which. And that's the hard part. And if you don't do it, how are you going to know? So doing it again and again and again and again um, is super important. And then I also think competition is great for for muzzle awareness, being able to move around in at least 180 degree environment with a gun. Uh, we live in a 360 degree environment and Hey, anywhere in this 180 is good with your muzzle. But if you're running back up range, you know, you gotta be paying attention to what's pointed at what and how you're handling your gun. I think it can do some, some great stuff for that. And for some folks that don't ever have a chance where they can draw a gun, where else can you go and draw guns? You can't do it at your indoor range. You know, so I think, I think those are some of the things that competition really, really uh, helped to solidify for me. Yeah. Funny. You mentioned the malfunction clearances like you did. Um, I have written a lesson plan for scenario based training that we're doing some square range stuff up for leading to scenario based training. And one of the things is, is I'm going to teach a class on the square range of malfunction clearing. Right. Well, in the scenario, 
they may get their gun that gets set up with a malfunction. You know, sim gun. It's if if I have you on the range and I'm teaching you malfunction clearing, I can test you on the skills needed to clear mm-hmm. the malfunction. But I can't. I don't know that you actually understand it. Yes. Until you get that that unexpected malfunction. Absolutely. That is absolutely the key. And and yeah. so so sticking with the interleave training, once you've taught your block of malfunction clearances that can become part of any training when you're using UTMs or SIMs or whatever you're using from there on out. And it probably should be right. Because, because it's not something that we're teaching so that students can show us today. It's something we're teaching so that students know and understand it for, for the eternity. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. so once that's taught, you know, and, and, and Will Petty and now a bunch of other instructors do some great things with just being able to interfere with the, the path of the brass and, you know, mm-hmm. using a sticker or something to block the ejection port on a rifle to induce malfunctions. So all of a sudden now students who are in the middle of some kind of evolution have a malfunction, whether that's UTM or live fire, that can be an incredibly important aspect because it's the, it's the stimulus and then the response. And if we just teach the response without the stimulus, we're missing the point. Mm-hmm. You know, for science released an article either earlier this week or last week where they, they wrote about how one of the failures in training is that officers standing on a line drawn to a static target in front of them never mm-hmm. learn that they have to turn their head from side to side or move their feet. Right. Right. Okay. If you're competing in IDPA or USPSA, any of those type sports, You've got to look from side to side and move your feet and move forward and sideways and laterally and everything. So that would be one of the benefits of competition going along. No doubt about it. In in most USPSA stages, there's movement from one place to another. Now, there are times when you might draw and stay static. Uh But if I can be moving while I'm drawing and I don't have anything to shoot right here, I'm going to be that much faster. I'm not going to draw, then move. I'm not going to move, then draw. I'm going to do them both at the same time and do that fluidly. And that's absolutely is a, if, if we just get people to learn that they can move their feet while they're doing stuff, then nature is probably going to help us out in a lot of ways, right? If somebody knows that there's cover over here and they're able to draw the gun and move towards that cover while they're drawing the gun, Hey, we've, we've done something. We're more efficient and that's a good thing. Efficiency is good. Well, you, you can even take it to like a sport like GSSF where there's no draw and you don't move. You do have targets at different distances on the same string. Yep. Yep. And so, so there's there's a difference there. Um, yep. One of the key benefits that I saw as far as like a huge leap forward in my shooting skill, just technical skill, when I dabbled in competition years ago, was in the cop world, we shoot against part-times all of the time. Right. And you learn to function within that part-time. Well, once I started shooting against a running clock and after a couple of matches got over that, oh, oh my gosh, the buzzer's going and I'm getting timed. Um, I actually, now I go back and I laugh at the part-times. Right, right. And it, it actually sometimes is painful for me to watch deputies that struggle to do a failure drill at three yards in 3.5 seconds. Right. Right. And now here's the thing for all our competition folks that are listening. 
there is a dramatic difference between drawing from a level three duty holster and drawing from your open top, even a concealed rig. Absolutely. Yeah, I got to tell you, if you're getting out from a level three duty rig and under 1.75, I'm happy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, I want it 150 or less, you know, everything. But if you're getting 175 out of a level three rig, I'm not going to fuss and complain. Yep. And but still, that's even if you come out at 175 to the to the first shot, give a half second cadence to the second shot. Okay, you're still at 225 and then a 0.5 or 0.75 transition to the head. You're still under three seconds. Yeah, right. It's not it, it shouldn't be a problem. Right. It should be a problem. I think people drastically, and, and this is a competition thing that it can teach you. I think people drastically underestimate how fast they can shoot at small targets at close distances. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I, you know, I work a cadence drill with students and we can easily be firing, you know, quarter second splits on a two inch target at four yards. And most students get most hits. If you, if you have a solid grip and you have a reasonable amount of trigger control and you know how to use the sights and you pay attention to the sights, um, that shouldn't be difficult to do at all. And that's on a two inch circle. Um, I think people, I think people think they need to do more work than they do. So that just goes back again to, you know, the, the competition aspect of things is if you can pay attention to how much work is needed for the shot and just do that much work you're going to be that much more efficient. And I'm not, I'm not saying you should be sloppy. I'm not saying you shouldn't have an accuracy standard. A hit's a hit and a miss is a miss. Um, but you need to learn what you need to do to get those hits. And, and that's hard to do otherwise. You know, I, I hardly ever have my students shooting from, okay, move to the three-yard line. All right, let's go to seven. We just move up and down the range. Yeah, I make sure I get them out to 35 yards, 25 yards, you know, whatever we have available to us. Um, so, I, so I know what those distances are. We're not talking about those distances. They don't, they don't need to know where they're at. They need to learn to judge what amount of work do I need to do to get that high center chest hit at 15 yards. Do that amount of work. You know, as we're talking, one other thing came to mind as a benefit of competition. Mm-hmm. You learn where the wheels come off. <laughs> What the wheels came off for you in competition? That never happened to me. Lee, everything yeah. was perfect. <laughs> but, but you learn where the wheels come off. Yeah, you do. Yeah. And, if and they do not, come off. Yeah, and they do come off. Yep. No doubt about yeah. it. And yeah. it's actually that's one of the reasons why I quit shooting competitively for, for a while. Uh, what was that? I was shooting IDPA. Okay. And I was very much, if I lost, if I dropped a point, it, I, I down one just mm. was the end of my world much less gotcha. a down three gotcha. and i wanted to be i didn't care if i won the match but i wanted to be the most accurate in the match and i didn't want to be clean points yep. and that's the way i approached it for the first while that i well, that i shot it and then i kept seeing you know name middle of the pack and everything and i finally i gave into those 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 pressures all right i gotta start pushing faster and for the first time ever, when I was trying to run it hard to move up on the list, yep. I hit a non-threat. Mm. Like, I shot two of them this weekend. Yeah, it's like, okay. So I learned that it, if I try to push to this level, that's where my wheels come off. And, and mm-hmm. I hit now. I, I've kind of interesting going back. I did when I first started trying to learn the dot. I mm-hmm. went and shot a few local club matches just so it was not right. something non-square range. 
Um, but that's just not something you're going to get standing on a static firing line. Right. Right. When you, when you have that pressure, it changes things. And I think that that's an important aspect of competition is again, we've moved out of the square range skill file drawer and where we've gone is to there's pressure. And, and I've talked to people, you know, I remember when I first started shooting competitively, I had a law enforcement friend that, you know, I convinced to come out to the range and, you know, we were trying to get one of his buddies to come and he's like, Oh heck no, man. There's no way that I'm going out to shoot competition. If you, if you tell me we're going to kick that door and there's six guys with rifles, fine, let's go do that. But to go out in front of my friends and screw up, there's no way I'm shooting competition. That kind of pressure is real to people. And I'm not saying that it's the same as fighting with a gun, but what I'm saying is it at least gets us someplace other than that square range file cabinet where there's some pressure. And, and I think that's really important. And, and, you know, for me, the wheels came off often in USPSA and I was, I mean, I was gunning to try and be, I wanted to be somebody in competitive shooting. And so, you know, my attitude was push, 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 push till the wheels come off and then, okay, let's rein it back in a little bit. And, and that's, that's how you learn that. It's kind of like lifting weights. If you don't ever lift heavy weights that are, you know, that you can't get your full set on, you're not going to get stronger. It just doesn't, you know, mass moves mass. So you've got to push to get those wheels to come off. If you want to be, if you want to be fast, but you can't go faster than seeing it. And if your eyes aren't seeing that no shoot target, then you've got to, you've got to dial it back in. And I'll give make another John Murphy reference. Uh, his uh, concealed carry advanced skills and tactics class, which I think is easily one of top three traveling road shows out there. Uh, John talks about windows and like your windows of opportunity or skill windows of skill. Yeah. If, if you have something in front of you, that's a one second problem, but you've got a two second skill set. That's not the time to deploy that two-second skill set. But if right. you have a two-second window and you have a one-second skill set, that will be the time to deploy that one-second skill set. Well, from shooting competition, if, if you know it takes me 1.5 to do execute that problem, you recognize the windows. But if you don't know those things, you don't know what your skill set is. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we, and, and we have to push to knock the wheels off to find that out. And that's, that's a really great analogy. Which class of that was John's? John's on my list. Uh, I was looking at his street, street encounters. Uh, concealed, concealed carry advanced skills and tactics. Okay. And that's FPF yep. training for, for our audience, John Murphy. I assisted him with it this weekend, so I got a refresher course in it. Good for, you. Good for you. And how's this for crazy math? He had five students in the class, which is an absolute travesty that there was only five students there. Two West Point grads and an Annapolis grad. Really? <laughs> Who won, Army or Navy? Um, Army, uh, <laughs> Army won the day on this one. Wow, that's great. Wow. Navy, Navy acquitted himself very, acquitted himself very well, uh, but uh, there was a, a very young, nimble West Point grad that uh, beat the old retired commander. And it, it was, he was on point with his skills. That's real. That must've been quite a class for the other two to have three folks that have been through a life of, uh, of discipline and, and uh, mm-hmm. that must've been pretty cool to watch. Yeah, it were they was good fun. students? I bet they were great students. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And the camaraderie and the rivalry back and forth. Sure. And of course there was that fact that it was an old Marine Corps uh, NCO telling them what right. to do. Right. Well, exactly. Even, yeah. <laughs> well, it was even better. Uh, anything. 
What's that? That's great. That's that's really yeah. cool. That's a fun fun story. Yeah. Uh, anything else from the what you got out of competition side of this? No, I think I mean we could go on forever and ever. A lot of great friendships, right? Mm-hmm. Came out of competition, and that's that's great too. Um, but uh, I, I think competition is worthy, and I think it's unfortunate that it gets the bad rap that it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand a little bit of where that comes from, but um, if you're paying attention to what you're doing, it's it's a great set of skills to be able to to pull from. Yeah, funny you mentioned the great friendships. The guy that owned the range where John's class was taught this weekend, mm-hmm. I met years ago at a little local outlaw level, you know, club type match. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the range that that match was shot at is like an hour away from my house. And I got up early on a Saturday morning and drove up there and pulled into the range. And that's when I realized I had left my hearing protection at home. And I look over and there's two guys, you know, at the next truck. And I say, hey, guys, uh, anyone of you have, happen to have any extra hearing protection I can borrow for the, for the match? And one guy, sure I do. Here you go. We've become lifelong friends. He now hey. owns his own range. And that's where I get to go teach classes now. Yep. And all of that started from I parked next to him at a, at a match and yep. forgot my hearing protection. It's, it's amazing. You know, I've, I've got friends that, that, uh, I shot with, you know, 2002, 2003, 2004, that I still get to bump into it at shot show and other events. And it's just, it's great to be able to catch up with people. And it's such a kind, and you know, if there's anybody out there that's worried about going to competition, cause they're worried that they're, you know, not good enough or they're not ready or man, just go and don't go to watch, take your gear somebody is going to be there to help you because it's, it's such a kind and giving community. And if you don't have the gear go and somebody has a full setup waiting for you at that match that they're going to be happy to let you borrow. And they'll probably let you shoot their ammo too. I mean, it's, it's that kind of a community. So um, if you want to make lifelong friends, competition shooting is, is the place to do it. All right. So now let's shift to the other question. What did you not get from competition that you felt like you needed to get elsewhere? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of that decision-making that I've been talking about, you know, this whole time, yes, you have to discern between shoots and no shoots, but it's simply a a white target versus Brown cardboard or an IDPA, you know, you've got the hands. Um, The the decision-making just isn't there. It's, it's all about being as fast as you can and, and getting those hits. And I think that that was um, a, a big departure. I, I, the, the time that I really realized it, and this, this kind of puts things into perspective, was I was on a range helping as a range officer for a, a defensive shooting class. And Brian Bastinelli, who's in the Farmington Hills Police Department, was there teaching a class. And I didn't, I didn't range officer very good that day because I was just like, I was learning so much about um, the the aspects of a critical incident where you're surprised, it's a close range, your life is in danger, and and competition didn't get me ready for any of that. Competition, man, I knew that after the match, all of us were going to have margaritas at the Mexican joint down the street. Um, when it comes to self-defense, you don't have that guarantee, and that that really changes things, and so that decision-making and, and really the what's on the line, you know, it's not about the prize table um, and, and getting a good, getting a good gun for winning the match. It's, it's uh, about a lot more than that. And so I think 
you brought it up before, and we talked about this when we were talking about assessment and standards, when we fail to look at the subjective aspects of how we do things, we then start to do things just to be faster or just to be more accurate. And that leads us into trouble because then we shortcut the kinds of things we need to do when it comes to defensive shooting. Um, I can't think of a defensive shooting situation where a buzzer is going to go off and I'm going to bolt through a door and I'm going to shoot all of the cardboard targets, right? Uh, There's, there's very little assessment. I'm never going to get five minutes before my gunfight to walk through and rehearse how I'm going to do things, where I'm going to reload. I don't get any of that. And that's what competition does. That's not a ding on competition. It's just a, a shortcoming that if you're training for real life situations, you can't let yourself fall into gaming it. And, and that's super hard to do. You, you mentioned it before, Lee, after I really started to become a, a hardcore self-defense guy and a trainer, and I was no longer competing, you know, trying to, to uh, make money at matches or, or be a professional shooter is the way I should say it. I started to say, no, I need to pay attention to how I'm drawing the gun and I need to be assessing and then all of a sudden, my name's popping up in the bottom third. And, and people are looking at me like, what's wrong with that guy? He used to be good. Wait a minute. I'm, I might even be better now than I was then. I'm just not playing the game. And it just stopped being fun. Right? It, 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 became, uh, it became frustrating because I know that I'm better than a 33% shooter. But because I'm not gaming it. And so that's where that's where competition let me down. And and if I've got one weekend a month that I can spend doing shooting how I want to do it, I've got to be efficient about that. And I've got that under my belt. And so now it's time for me to do other stuff, if that makes sense. Jim Cirillo was a middle of the pack shooter Mm -hmm. in competition. Right. Right. That guy performed miraculously in real right. life shooting situations right yep. and yeah and it's just it's funny you know another thing that pops into my head here picture a three target array idpa targets mm-hmm. a left target is a shoot target yep middle target is a no shoot right right target is a shoot target and so you're going left to right yeah as if you draw and hit left target and go straight across with your muzzle across that no shoot Lee, that's my daughter. That's my daughter. You just pointed your gun at. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the, that's the problem that we have, right? right. It's uh, um, yeah, it's it. Yeah. And, and that's what you do to win the game, but mm-hmm. we have to be smarter about how we train for defensive situations. And so if you're shooting IDPA or USPSA, don't think for a second that I'm going to get on your case about pointing at a no shoot target because that's the game. I get it. That's mm-hmm. fine but we just have to make sure we don't transition that skill set out to the real world. Right. Yeah. Because here's the thing. If you actually shoot that the way you would need to shoot it in the real world and you hit left target diverted muzzle yep. to come around and get it. Okay. That's costing you time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, if you're wanting to finish high in the lists in the standings, not going to do it. That's going to, yeah, it's going to burn you. Right. But that's exactly how we need to train 
mm-hmm. to be ready to deal with those kinds of situations. People that are innocent people don't need guns pointed at them. Right. They need to not have guns pointed at them. And, and that's a, an important skill to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gabe White's a name that many in our audience would recognize. I was actually on the range at Rogers when he shot the 125 perfect okay. score. In the next booth was a guy in a USPSA race rig that shot a 125 perfect score. Gabe did it from concealment. Mm. Okay. The only person that has outdone that is Kirk Clark. And Kirk's done it multiple times from concealment. All right. Gabe goes out and shoots USPSA from concealment. Right. Okay. I think he's a master level in his classification. If he were to put on the race rigs, he'd make grandmaster. Yeah, he might very well. He might yeah, very well. He, he'd make grandmaster. Uh, Kirk is making, I think he just made grandmaster or is on his way to it, is still challenged from his concealment. Wow, good for those guys. Okay, they are making it harder on themselves, but they're wanting to get their practice with their real world right. equipment. Right. And, you know, funny thing about our sport or our lifestyle as far as whether you're shooting competitively or you're, you're training, it's the only thing that I know of where we get to hang out with our Michael Jordans and our Terry yes. Bradshaws yeah. and, and yeah. everything else. There are six people who have shot perfect scores at Rogers. I have met five of them and That's have great. three of them have their phone numbers in my phone and I'm on right. a first name basis with them. Right. You know, I, I, I have met some NFL players because I've arrested them, but, uh, <laughs> You know, I, I don't have any that. of them. I'm not on like a first name basis with any right. current NFL players or any of the greats and everything. But I've actually like been on the range and shot with the guys like, man, that's just fantastic. Yeah. I got squatted in a super squad once. The match director was doing me a favor. And uh, it was one of the most fun matches I've ever had. And it was actually down in your neck of the woods. It was down in, it was a Georgia uh, area. It was that area that Georgia's in for USPSA. So I was down there, uh, shot with, with Seeklander and Strader and those guys. And man, we had a good time. And I probably had one of the worst matches I've ever had because I'm watching these guys do it. And I'm like, okay, I'll try it like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I talk about the wheels coming off, but uh, yeah, very fun. Yeah, it's funny. I shot a IDPA state championship match in a sponsor slot okay uh sponsor had you know was sponsoring the match so he got a slot and asked me to shoot it and so i shot on friday instead of saturday mm-hmm. with everybody else well there was a professional three gunner that was shooting the match and he could only shoot it on friday so they let him come in and, and do it that day and we were squatted together and there was one stage where i was the first shooter up and I have, you know, of course, I'm formulating my plan sure. of what I'm going to do. And I go to walk over uh, to get started in the stage involved. It was either carrying a briefcase or carrying a baby cradle, one, one or the other. And this individual just walked up to me very, very quietly said, if you do this. And like gave me a quick brief on what he was saying. Right. do, And that was not the plan that I had in my head. It's like. Wow. Wow. Okay. All right. And probably saved me a second and a half to two seconds on the stage. Oh, you were able to do it. Yeah. Because see, it was, here, my yeah. experience has been somebody says, Oh, try this. And now I don't have any plan in my head. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that situation comes up too. 
Yeah, but the fact that he saw that, yeah, and re- immediately recognized it because that had not, not entered my mind whatsoever right. to do it the way he said do it. Well, you talked yeah. before about understanding and knowing, you know, the the amount of time it comes takes to come from the holster and to get the first hit, and and now you've got to split to the second shot, and now we need to transition. Yeah. Those folks that are competing at that level, no one understand what the transition time is. You know, when the targets are four yards apart and seven yards deep, and they also know how long it's going to take for the swinger to activate and, you know, then become full value. And and they have all that broken down. So they know, okay, I can take the activator and then this static target, this static target, and then my swinger is going to be full value. I mean, that's just an amazing, that's an amazing level of experience to be able to break down stages in that way. And that's a talent and a skill all in and of its own. Learning and understanding how it is that you you break that down to be as efficient as possible. Yeah. Anything else on the competition? No, I miss it. That's it. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually looking. There's a club level match on Sunday uh, (laughs) here local, and I'm I'm I was looking today at the squads, and there's one squad right now that's only got three people in it. There were three of the guys that I used to squad with. Oh, there you go. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to have to pull out the credit card and pay 40 bucks to get a membership back in IDPA so I could go 15 bucks with this club just to hang out with those guys again. And I did not care whether or not I exactly be in the place. Well, I hope you do. And I hope you have a good time with it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, so now I guess we should interleave the audience one more time and we should actually talk about what started the whole thing that got this episode. <laughs> off the ground in the first place and that's weapon handling particularly when it comes to weapon mounted lights yeah. because what initially started our conversation a while back was i think it was the episode where chuck Hager was on and we were talking about yeah. cops pointing guns at lights you know right. pointing people at, cops pointing guns at people all the time yeah. and because they do it because they got the weapon light on on yeah. their gun and that's how they're searching and that's one aspect of that. And you sent me a comment based on that episode. And we had an exchange and everything. And, and that led to tonight's episode. Yeah. So you made some excellent comments before we started recording about actually using the weapon light to search, which is we've made comments on the show previously about you don't do that. And so you have a counterpoint. Well, you know, what, what I want to make sure we say before this, I'll, I'll kind of give two points here. First of all, I'm not a law enforcement officer. Um, so, you know, don't, don't take any of this as the context uh, or in the context of what law enforcement officers should do. I'm an armed citizen. Um, I carry a gun and oftentimes I have guns with weapon mounted lights on them. And so I need to know and understand how I can use those, those firearms properly. Um, people that don't need to get shot don't need to have guns pointed at them. And that's an important aspect. We just talked about that from the IDPA standpoint. So I don't want anyone to misunderstand what it is that I'm saying. Um, There are certainly times when you should not be searching with a weapon mounted light. An example would be um, I'm in my home um, upstairs asleep by myself. I hear a noise downstairs I don't know where my wife and my two daughters are. And I decide to go and investigate. 
I'm not going to be searching with a weapon mounted light because the the greatest probability is someone that I care about and love came downstairs to get a glass of water or whatever the case might be. And if I'm searching with my weapon mounted light, I have a, a higher likelihood of pointing my gun at somebody I care about. Now, on the contrary, um, my wife and daughters are upstairs with me. We're holed up in the bedroom. And now I feel for some reason stretching your imagination with me because I probably wouldn't do this, but I feel like I need to go out into the home for some reason. Okay, well, now all the people I love and care about are behind me. I might be more inclined to think that that's a time when searching with a weapon mount and light is appropriate. But the key to all of this is I have to have the skills in, in handling my weapon so that I can search with the weapon mount and light safely. Um, they're responsibly is probably a better term. Gary would appreciate that. Uh, and, and I think we've have done our armed citizens and our law enforcement officers a great injustice that we don't teach the simple carry and ready positions so that people can use their light without pointing their gun at other people. And that's really the, the whole key to this is we have incredibly powerful weapon mounted lights. Now, even on a pistol, it's not uncommon to be pushing a thousand lumens and soon it's going to be, you know, higher than that. Um, and, and all of that light can do amazing, amazing things. And so if you carry a gun with a weapon mounted light, I'll say, I believe you should be carrying a handheld light for sure. We're not going to use that, that light as a flashlight, but once you have some skills in place, being able to have two hands on the gun or to have a hand to operate doors do all the other work that you might need to do. It makes sense to have a weapon mounted light and have those skills to be able to do some work with that weapon mounted light. All right. And, and for the audience to make this clear. Yeah. When he's saying search with the weapon mounted light, he's talking like using a ready position. So that he's not pointing the gun at a potential person is using the spill from the light to search an area or say you're bouncing the light off of a ceiling from a high ready to illuminate an entire room exactly. versus I'm scanning the room with the light. Right. That's exactly right. So, you know, uh, a high ready position where we're just at a high compressed ready, we're looking over the top of the muzzle of our gun, the light is activated and bouncing off of the ceiling. Even if it's not a perfectly white ceiling, mm -hmm. it gives a tremendous amount of light to the room. Uh, I'll also say that if I'm in a situation where I might need to point a gun at people, this can be a great technique to help break down the shadows in the room and redirect light in other directions so I can see things that I can't see if I'm pointing directly at. If I've got a couch in front of me, I'm pointing a gun directly at the couch, that's creating shadows. Well, I can break those shadows down by pointing up or I can spill the light off the floor, bounce the light off the floor and spill the light in other areas where I can see. If, I've, if, if there's a person, if I see feet, I can, you know, point the gun so that it's directed in front of the feet of the person in front of me, whether that's from a, a, a pseudo sewell position or an extended low ready position. I can bounce that light. I can see the waistband. I can see hands. I can see face with that spill light. And then I can interrogate that target. And what I mean by that is look at that threat or that potential threat and see is it really a threat or is this my you know, brother-in-law that got in a fight with his wife and decided to come over and sleep on my couch without announcing himself? Yeah. And that's, that's really the key to those kinds of things is having those skills. And it, it applies to long guns too. You know, one thing that goes along with that is if, if, if I've got the weapon extended in front of me 
and mm -hmm. I'm using it to scan, I'm not going to see anything below the hand level of where my hands are. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And so if you think about a, a person standing in front of you, and, and then this is the perfect example. I mentioned that I shot two no-shoot targets this weekend. And the reason that I shot those two no-shoot targets is I brought my rifle up and my rifle obscured the waistband and the hands of the target. And then I didn't take the time to interrogate those targets properly. There's no doubt that those targets, my rifle needed to come down so that I could see the waistband, I could see the hands. And then if I determined that the target needed shot, I can bring that rifle back up and get to work. Um, so, so we definitely have to be aware and understand that we can only do so much from different positions. And if we're obscuring the hands and the waistband, the area that are directly related to the hands, if you've got someone standing next to a table and you can't see what's on that table, you haven't determined whether that's a potential threat or not. You know, you, you use the term interrogate the target. And in the scenario that you gave, why not ask the person who they are? right or why don't they hear you know because you hear this statement all the time i'm going to shoot anybody that i don't recognize that's in my house what if it's an honest mistake that the person's in your house or someone in your house allowed someone in that you didn't know they'd been allowed Absolutely. in uh, Absolutely. not in the house that i live in currently but the house i lived in previously my next door neighbor was also an officer with a different agency and i just happened to see it because i couldn't sleep was sitting in my living room watching TV. A car pulls into my driveway and I see shadowy figure run across the yard, another shadowy figure run across the yard. And I made it to my window just in time to see the feet as they dove into mm. my neighbor's window. Well, I initiated the 911 chain because I didn't work for the agency that had would be responding. And I didn't want to be standing in my yard, right? Gun in my hand and everything. And so I stayed in visual contact with 911. Uh, they were relaying my real-time stuff to the officers. And then finally, one of the officers said, okay, have him step out. And one of the officers that responded was an academy classmate of mine, which yeah. added a whole another level of fun to this because, oh my gosh, Lee's in trouble. He's calling 911. The wrath of God descended upon that street that night. Nine cars came. <laughs> and we surround the house, go up and knock on the door. Uh, my neighbor, Ronnie, comes to the door and says, hey, Ronnie, I saw somebody go through this bedroom window back here. His teenage daughter's boyfriend, he had two teenage daughters and their boyfriends came over and snuck in. And so we had the great pleasure of dragging them out of those girls' houses and like a semicircle of cops formed around them, you know, and everything. But it's that would not be a situation. Uh, you shot teen, your daughter's teenage boyfriend because he was in the house. Right, right. And, and, and nobody wants that to happen. Yeah. Um, even if it's justifiable, isn't the right word, but if it's, mm -hmm. if it's excusable by the law, that doesn't mean that it's ethically and morally appropriate. And, right. and we, we don't think about the relationship with your daughter. I mean, even if it's somebody that, that, that they don't care about, I mean, just, yeah. it's just a whole mess that you don't want to get into. Mm -hmm. So, so having the ability to, to be able to use your firearm properly can help to sort those things out. And so perfect example, Lee, you talked about the fact that you stayed inside your house. I mean, that's, a, that's an incredibly important thing because the responding officers, they might not know what you look like when you're not in uniform, right? right. Even if they know you from a professional standpoint. Mm -hmm. So then you get into a situation where you don't realize that it's an officer that's come around the back of the house and somebody all of a sudden has a light in your face. 
They don't identify themselves. You can't see what's happening. What's your response? Yep. I mean, I mean, the 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 possibilities are are really endless, and so um, we definitely need to make sure that we're we're using those lights appropriately. And having the lights in the eyes of the person can certainly be an advantage to you. But if they don't need to be shot, and they're there to help too, so think about two concealed carry holders. One of them puts a light in the other, and somebody knows it's attached to a gun. How is that going to turn out? It's yep. going to turn out into a shooting. You know, and so we have to be really thinking about these things and how we use those lights. And, and if you're and if you're wondering at all, gosh, should I be using my weapon mounted light? No, switch to your handheld. It's that simple. It's that simple. I'm not going to outline the incident tonight because it's probably going to be featured in a future episode. Um, but I was an expert witness in a case in which where the light was pointed was pivotal mm. in the jury's decisions. Right. Because one of the people involved testified that the light was shining in his face, and the video actually showed that the light was pointed into the floor, just as you were describing, and the spill was what illuminated uh, the defendant in this case. And that completely changed the jury's outcome. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, um, being familiar with your, with your weapon-mounted light is hugely important. And, and so to, find, to define kind of what you're talking about, Lee, in a, in a light, we typically have a hot spot, right? If you, if you were to point your light at a wall, we've got that really bright spot that's in front. And then we've got this big corona that surrounds it, and that's the spill. And we can do so much work with that spill. You know, we, we love the, all those lumens. We love that, that candela that that hot spot has. But if we think about the fact that 15 years ago, that spill was the brightest light that was on the market, right? You know, 60 blinding lumens. Um, you can still accomplish a tremendous amount of work and not put anybody in danger. And that's really the key to it. Yeah, I think you mentioned long guns, but let's just make sure we, we specifically address that. Yeah. You know, with the long gun, you really have to use the spill because you're probably not going to be going hand, handheld light along with long gun. Right. And, and certainly it's possible, but long guns are, are typically two-handed tools. And so having a light on that long gun is super important. But again, we've got to have the ability to bring that down to a low ready or to a high ready butt stock near where you have a holstered gun at three o'clock looking right over the top of the muzzle we can spill that light off of the ceiling or even you know if the person's out in a in a yard we can drive so the spill is illuminating their face their hands and their waistband and now we're not pointing a gun at somebody and we're also not blinding somebody and so we've got we've got those advantages and how long does it take us to get from a high ready to on target if we need to or from a low ready to on target it takes fractions of a second to to do that work but you have to practice these skills. You need to go to the range in low light conditions or, you know, make sure that your, your firearm is clear. There's no ammunition in the area and, you know, work in your own home with a, with a dry gun, take the bolt out of your AR-15 and go in and work these kinds of problems or, or, you know, break down your shotgun and take the bolt out of it and go and do some work and see how it works. Yeah. All right. We've been going about an hour and a half. So mm. is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you would like to discuss? Uh, probably not tonight. I mean, we could go on for hours and hours about this kind of stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing with sure. these episodes. We could just keep going with the conversation. Yeah. 
which is which is great. But uh, I, I actually want to ask you, as a law enforcement officer, sure. is there anything that you think needs clarification from what we just talked about from a from a law enforcement standpoint, or you're obviously experienced as an as an armed citizen as well. Is there anything that needs to be clarified so that people don't misunderstand where I'm coming from with this this you know line of thinking? No, I think we we clarified everything you know as it came up uh, throughout the conversation. Uh, Good. If I get any emails. You know, with yeah. people asking points, I'll be sure to forward those on to you and, mm-hmm. and include you, and and, and you know, address it later. If 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 not, uh, I can't think of anything we need to go back and say and clear it up. Excellent, excellent. Okay, yeah. what do you I, got upcoming? Well, you? yeah, the place you find me most often is Alliance Police Training, and and it would be remiss if I didn't mention that. Um, very a a large body of my knowledge in the past five years which makes up a large body of my knowledge altogether has come from joe wire uh the the carry and ready positions that i'm talking about and we didn't really teach them here tonight but Mm -hmm. discussed them those all come from the teachings of joe he didn't invent them but he really helped to solidify the the different uses of them for people and for me so um, that's the place you can find me the most i i work as a as a range jockey or whatever you want to call me and, and do some instructing uh, when the opportunity ally, uh, allows itself there. Um, and then uh, safety solutions Academy is, is my company and I've got classes coming up uh, uh, April 9th, 10th in Illinois. So basically St. Louis area, oh. Southern Illinois. Um, I'll be out in Kansas uh, teaching at tall grass shooting sports in May out in Washington in June. So kind of traveling around you can check the web, website and uh and see what classes are listed and this is the kind of stuff that i teach carry and ready positions are one of the foundational parts of of both my handgun and carbine classes so i think they're that important and that was safety solutions academy safety solutions academy.com yep. okay yep. Uh, i have been trying to do a really good job of putting links in the show description to everything that we brought up that, that can awesome. link um with the Annette Evans episode and one of the other previous episodes, the two that we had problems with the feed were once I had uploaded the episode, but before it published, uh, I got some information like Annette sent me a link to um, a product. Okay. And I went back and added it into the description before it, before it published. And that created a problem with the feed and so I'm, I'm getting kind of leery of putting links in the description because it messes up everything else. Sure, so sure. we may spell stuff out in the, yeah. uh, in the show. The, the two places I'd encourage you to check out are AlliancePoliceTraining.com. Uh, it's, a, it's an amazing place that has open enrollment classes. The, the entire range is funded by the tuition to courses. So the city mm-hmm. pays zero tax dollars to run this range. It's all funded by the tuition to courses and armed citizens train right alongside police officers, SWAT teams, et cetera. So uh, it's a great place to go. And then my website, Safety Solutions Academy. I keep looking over to the side. The battle beagle escaped uh, her <laughs> confinement and is trying to get into my lap over here and make an appearance on camera. I'm surprised she, she hasn't cut loose and we hadn't heard her yet. But uh, she's got this bass bark that you'll actually feel it like somebody driving by with the bass at the stereo. Yeah. And uh, so she has to stay confined when, when I'm recording an episode. But uh, any closing thoughts? Uh, get out there and get training, folks. And when you do, keep it simple and have a great day. I mean, that's that's what it comes down to for me. All right, folks. Um, Paul, thank you for, for coming on tonight. I very much enjoyed the episode and the freewheeling conversation that we had. Thanks, uh, Lee, I appreciate it. 
we got into things we didn't initially plan, but I, I really enjoyed it, especially like Good the thing. assessment talk. And uh, one of the comments that I that I keep getting from people is like, well, "That's great! You just, you just people just come on and they just talk, and you have a conversation, and it's it's great." Um, so I'm very much enjoying that aspect of the show. Uh, to the audience, uh, thank you for continuing to play along, and the audience is continuing to grow. But as we we constantly say. Only share the link with your smart friends. Don't share it with the dumb ones because we, we don't need any of the dumb people dragging us down. Um, but uh, thank you for continuing to play along. Thank you for supporting it. I've you know, been trying to have an episode every week that got disrupted when I got the, the, the COVID and then last week's issue with the, uh, uh, with the feed. Uh, I do have some stuff going on that's like making it where I get one mic a week record now where I was having four or five nights a week where I could get episodes put together. So that's making the schedule on my end a little more challenging, but I am going to try to get back and make sure I'm having one roll out every week. So uh, thank you for continuing to play along. And because I realize that your most important asset is your time. And thank you for choosing to spend that with us.